Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, Chris Tilling, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Han Luen Kanser Comline, Associate Professor of Church History and Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Michigan. She also serves as the co-editor of the International Journal of Systematic Theology and is an ordained minister of Word and Sacrament in the Reformed Church in America. I am excited to have Han Luen here because I get to geek out with her about early Christian theology. Woohoo! But her interests are wide-ranging, as we will see. We'll be discussing, for the most part, her first monograph. It's a doozy, an impressive work on Augustine on the Will, a theological account published by Oxford University Press in 2020. This book is an astounding achievement. Thank you so much for doing all of this work to read Augustine this closely so I don't have to. <laughs> also, hot off the presses from Baker Academic, the fourth edition of Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity, which Han Luen co-authored with Mark Knoll and David Comline. Today, we'll be talking about Augustine and, you know, the broad swath of the history of Christianity. So just a small conversation. It's going to be a good time. Welcome, Han Luen. Thank you so much, Amy. It's great to be here. Could you start us off today by talking about what your journey into theology looked like? Is there a moment or two that stands out as being particularly formative for you? Well, I think my mind goes first to some amazing people along the way who were so encouraging and inspiring. So mentors at Wheaton College and in seminary and actually my family. So um, theology is kind of the family business. And um, in retrospect, I think my parents like went out of their way not to push me into theology and to not pressure me at all in that regard. But I think just observing uh, the theologians in my family was really inspiring to see um, their integrity as Christians, um, their graciousness and humility. So those people were all really, really important. So I, I could start there. Could say more too. <laughs> Is there any moment that stands out as formative for you? Mm, um, I think so in the spring semester of my freshman year, I spent a lot of time just actually reading scripture and just thought, wow, this is so great. I would love to do this all the time. Um, and so that's what got me thinking about theological disciplines. And I also wanted to, to sort of read scripture as a whole, um, as a whole canon and in conversation with other Christians. And at the same time, I was pursuing a philosophy major and I felt kind of like, these big questions are so interesting and cool, but my hands are tied behind my back a little bit. Um, because we're supposed to operate without reference to scripture. So eventually I thought, oh, well, maybe these two can be combined. So you open the book with a statement that Augustine's conception of the will has proven elusive. Obviously, this gets at why you wrote the book. How has Augustine's 
conception of the will proven elusive? And and kind of what is at stake in our understanding of Augusta and the will? And as you know, as we're thinking about even what is the will in the first place and how Augustine helps us process that? Um, I think that the fact that the will has been so extensively and heatedly debated has actually made it harder to access for us because really basic questions like whether Augustine was a person to invent the will, whether he had a really creative take on it or just kind of gives us a warmed over version of stoicism. Questions like this haven't been really resolved. There isn't a clear consensus. And so people don't really know what to think about what he thought about the will. Another issue is that people disagree so much about the will normatively, whether his understanding is theologically helpful or hurtful. Um, And so all of these disagreements make it really difficult to access what he thought. And when trying to get to the bottom of this in my initial phases of research, I started to realize that the lack of clarity on these issues had to do with just a basic confusion about what he actually said. So those are some of the ways it's been elusive. And I think some of the the payoff of exploring what it means is that once we know what he said, what his view was, that helps to clarify some of these debates. Yeah. I I mean, even where he got these ideas, I mean, you mentioned, I like your phrase, a warmed over version of stoicism. Even where he got a lot of this is up for debate. And you, you hinted at it here, but maybe talk about it. You know, open up the scholarly space a little bit for us on somebody like this. I mean, how did you wade through all of this material? I, I mean, maybe give us a sense of how a scholar jumps into the deep end of scholarship on such a profoundly complica- complicated person and idea, especially someone that has people have very strong opinions about Augustine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as we know. So how, how did you just approach this? I was very fortunate to have a couple of really outstanding studies to kind of stand on and begin to wade through all of this together with. Um, one was by Lenka Karfikova, Grace in the Will, and another by Sarah Catherine Byers on uh, motivation in Augustine. And both of them, both of these books are fairly recent and concern Augustine's understanding of the will. And so these were great conversation partners. Um, both of these scholars are really erudite. So even though I disagreed with some of their conclusions, it was really helpful to have those in-depth secondary sources. And then on the other side of it, I actually tried to, as I was working on the project, really focus on the primary (laughs) intensively. Um, So I guess that would be, that's one strategy for approaching a figure like Augustine where the secondary literature is so enormous, is really focusing on approaching the question in a way that prioritizes his own words and how he described things. Yeah. And, and Augustine wrote a lot. I, I once heard somebody say anyone who's claimed they've read all of Augustine is lying. Um, <laughs> so um, to help us have a window into some of the things that he wrote about and into just a project like this, 
and the context and concerns he had, maybe introduce us to some of the works that you engaged with in this book to give us a sense of the different works you were reading. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One thing that was really fun was just to read works from different points in his career because they vary so vastly. So I guess um, if I choose maybe three that rise to the top from different periods of his career, I would choose on free choice, which is an earlier work. I mean, he started it shortly after his conversion. Um, And there he's really dealing with the question, um, where does evil come from? The problem of evil. And he brings up the will in that context. And this text does a really great job of representing his earliest understanding and how the will was created to function. And then we have something like uh, Ad Simplicianum, which is, I would say, it's really the crucial turning point in his thinking on the will. And that's from, you know, at this point, he's in the thick of ministry, and he's addressing some exegetical questions. And in this one, you see him, it's so fun, because you can see his mind changing as he writes it, um, as he's in dialogue with Paul. And so here, uh, the view he ends up with is something quite different from that earlier work. So the context is more, much more exegetical. And then theologically, the context is, wow, this is what happens given the fall to the will. And then as a third one, I would pick on the grace of Christ and original sin. Uh, this one is not so well known. Philosophers love on free choice and everyone reads Ad Simplicianum because it's just so crucial for understanding Augustine's development. But On the Grace of Christ is a gem that's often overlooked. And I I, I just love that one. It's from the Pelagian um, controversy from that context. And uh, Augustine is explaining to some folks who've encountered Pelagius and they say, hey, like his description of grace sounds pretty good. I I don't understand what's wrong with this. I mean, maybe he's actually fine and there's no issues with this perspective. And Augustine really lays out some of the key differences between um, Pelagius's understanding of grace and how it relates to human willing and his own. So it's three totally different polemical contexts, like in On Free Choice, the first one, it's more in this anti-Manichaean vein. Um, And there are also three, I think in the end, three different theological contexts as well when we think about how this fits into Augustine's mature perspective. Yeah. So you mentioned two of his interlocutors here. So Pelagius and then the Manichaeans. So can you introduce us to those interlocutors? You know, I'm not going to assume every everyone is probably that's listening has probably maybe heard Pelagianism or heard Pelagius, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not so much um, Manichaeanism. And generally, Julian of Clanum gets kind of the <laughs> kind of the tail end of the of the conversation. So, can you? Um, who are his interlocutors? And I also think um, I was de- delighted to see that you talk about the soliloquies um, because I think that a, a really uh, misunderstood 
piece of Augustine's theology is that one of his major interlocutors is himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, and we get this from attractions and such later where he's kind of thinking on his own theology. But as you just said, like you can he- you can listen to him like almost in that he's almost like writing as he speaks like there's not very much filter in some ways Mm. of what he's thinking which i I think makes him a particularly accessible person Um, but so who are who are those interlocutors can you just kind of give an introduction to them and then maybe why should we care about them like what are the particular contexts and concerns that they bring up that help us to connect with augustine yeah yeah So I think you're absolutely right. The Manichees are the least well-known, and it's probably also the hardest to see how what they said matters, but I think it does. Um, So so the Manichees, they um, had a dualistic perspective, and they attributed the evil in the world um, to an alternative source besides God so that there were sort of these two powers, good, good God. And then this demigod who um, was responsible for the material world. And I think that they, they also had a lot of teachings about how to respond to this situation, what foods to eat um, in order to liberate sort of light particles that corresponded to good. And so this, these sorts of aspects are really difficult, I think, for us to connect with. But I think the impulse that led to the formation of this whole system is something that we can relate to, which is how could there be evil in the world and how could how do, how can this be reconciled with a good god how do we make sense of this and this they developed this system in order to help come up with an explanation and i think um while the precise details of their system might be a little um disconnected with anything that we would tend to think today there are still aspects of their belief that connect, like, you know, being suspicious of the material world and thinking that maybe the body is something to be suspicious of. Um, so they were, the Manichees were probably the main dialogue partner for Augustine's earlier understanding of the will and thinking through how the will was created. And in relation to them, he was able to articulate the goodness of the will as it's as it was created in its power. And then on the other side, on the flip side, we've got folks known as Pelagians, um, although there are distinctions between what various folks associated with Pelagianism thought, as you already intimated. So there was Pelagius was one dialogue partner. And then um, Julian of Aclanum was another one. And I think um, we Pelagius is someone who actually resonates extremely well with with many perspectives that we might find represented in in Christianity today. So he, he was really worried about complacency and wanted to motivate people to 
live good lives and to be virtuous, to be good people. And I think that's something we can all connect with on some level is um, wanting to be better, wanting ourselves and others to be better and recognizing that we have the potential to live in a more faithful way than we currently are. And that was, that was his concern where he and Augustine really differed was in thinking through how, how we improve. And for Pelagius, um, it was all about not underestimating ourselves and our own abilities. He says in his, uh, a famous letter he wrote, his letter to Demetrius, um, a, a young woman who had recently, recently taken up an ascetic life. He says, you know, whenever I have to speak about holiness, I always emphasize that like the first principle that you have to recognize is your own strengths. You can't forget how much you're capable of. So that was Pelagius's approach. And it was in relation to Pelagius, especially that a lot of details of Augustine's understanding of the will as fallen were worked out. And then also his understanding of what the solution is to this predicament. And um, Julian of Aclanum, he's similar to Pelagius in some ways, but also um, we have more nuanced discussions of Christ's humanity in in Julian of Aclanum and just a lot of more detailed debates that he and Augustine hash out together. And he has his own sort of distinct take on Christian theology and grace and is a little bit more nuanced than Pelagius, I would say. Um, but some of the, some similar issues are in play. But I also think when we're thinking through his interlocutors, as you say, Augustine's relationship with himself is important, how he develops, how he rejects certain earlier perspectives and um, grows and does so self-consciously. And part of that self-relationship would also be his relationship to earlier Christian thinkers. So that's another thing I try to bring out in the book is that in addition to thinking through his relationship to Stoicism and other philosophical trajectories, it's helpful to think through his developing understanding of the will in relation to these earlier Christian thinkers. Not that philosophy and Christian thinking is incompatible. It's like they're all mixed together. Um, But people like Ambrose of Milan or Cyprian of Carthage were really important as well, I think, to Augustine's understanding of the will. And you could also even say with Paul, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, it's it's so interesting to me. I, in thinking about how Augustine... I often wonder what it was like. I, I, in my mind, Augustine like talked to himself, like as he was like working through things. Like I, I feel like he had to like hear himself say things. So I often wonder, like as he's working through a difficult text or something, as he's reading Romans, you know, what are you doing here, Paul? <laughs> Why didn't you write more about this to help me with this Julian guy? I mean, <laughs> um, I, I just uh, I, one thing I deeply appreciate about Augustine is. Um, just he just has kind of a forward tilt into basically every conversation he has. Um, he he leans hard and he leans into it, even if he overstates sometimes or is still in process. He really wants to get things out there, and and I think in writing a book about kind of 
where you're not you're not just writing about a sort of disembodied idea of the will in Augustine. You're actually trying to narrate a bit for us about what it was like for Augustine to grow in this space over time and the choices that he made and what kind of what other what kind of came into the conversation as he matured in that space. So I was wondering if you could read, I mean, we talked about certain sections you could read. Would you read from that page 12? I think this is where you really tell us kind of uh, the overarching direction that you're going to go. And I think it's really helpful for us thinking about somebody as complicated as Augustine. And then how as a scholar, how do you kind of make sense of the complexity? Sure. For Augustine, the will is a highly complex phenomenon whose workings and key features vary drastically in different contexts. The character and capacities of human willing depend on when willing occurs in relation to certain key theological events. Augustine's understanding of the significance of these events, in turn, emerges from his efforts to make sense of scripture, both in terms of its larger narrative arc, running from creation to eschaton, and in terms of specific pericopes, especially those from the writings of Paul. In this sense, Augustine's conception of will is not only inherently theological, it is inherently biblical. It does not make sense apart from the story of God's relationship to human beings as recorded in scripture. It is the story of this relationship that holds Augustine's multifaceted conception of will together as one coherent account. Thank you. So... You describe Augustine's mature conception of the will as multifaceted, and then you also use the phrase theologically differentiated. Um, and here, where his conception of the will is inherently theological and inherently biblical. Can you give us a sense of how you ended up with kind of its, its complicated analysis <laughs> of Augustine's relationship uh, with the will and how you kind of made sense of the theological and the biblical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as I was working through Augustine's primary texts, I, I worked chronologically. And so I kind of, um, I started with the earlier period of his writing and it just so happens because as we discussed, the Manichees are his initial, conversation partners in a lot of those writings. Earlier on, he's really focused on the will as it's created. And then over time, things change. So I guess the initial observation was just his thinking on the will changes a lot <laughs> over time. And it looks different in different periods. So once we've seen that, that it changes, then the question is, well, what causes those changes? How does he explain those changes? And what we find when we look at him is that he articulates those changes in terms of this story of which God is the author. And how do we know about this story? Well, we encounter it in scripture. And that's how Augustine gets deeper and deeper into this story. And it's like in interpreting scripture that he comes to add on these layers of how the will changes over time. So it all, I guess, sort of aligns kind of neatly in Augustine in that the way his thinking develops also tracks on to the story of creation, fall, redemption, and then the eschaton. 
So I think that it, it all ties together and, um, it's confusing without that larger context to see how the different parts work together, but they are tied together in one coherent whole. And, and I think I think you made a really strong, compelling case for this um, in your book. I, I you know I deeply appreciated how you carefully articulated the complexity of his thought, but also how it is coherent, like <laughs> how it fits together. It makes sense what he's doing. Um, I want to, I'm going to read one section from page one, uh, page 48 here. Um, and then I'm going to ask a question about it. So it says, uh, you write discerning God's will requires becoming God's friend. Being God's friend requires abiding by God's commandments. The sum of God's commandments is love. Thus getting to know the will of another human or divine requires more than the kind of intellectual inquiry whose results can be recorded in books. It is a matter of action and of conduct and ultimately of love. It requires, in the words of Scripture from 1 Timothy 1.5, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a faith unfeigned. I love this bit about becoming God's friend. Um, it's like the person who prays vague prayers invoking God's will without doing the work of knowing God or God's will yeah, specifically. And I was thinking about this, and this, this struck me because I spend most of my time in the Greek East. My, you know, just from my tradition and background, Augustine and I actually don't have a lot in common. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so it's kind of an, um, an interesting relationship, right? So he has a lot of ideas associated with him and quite a reputation in some ways. And, and I would say he and I would degree, disagree on a lot, but I am always struck. And it, it hit me again when I read it with this piece. I'm always struck at how he centers love in his theology. And I think that's one of the things that why the confessions continue to be so compelling for people is because he wears his heart on his sleeve as he's mm -hmm. processing his own story, as well as the story of, of God in his life. And so how can those of us or and others um, to varying or less to lesser or greater degrees who would disagree with Augustine at times or maybe even all the time, how can we listen well, uh, but perhaps also respond to Augustine in productive dialogue? It's a little bit like the undergraduate student and the professor. Like, can I disagree with the professor? Like, do we get to agree? Do we disagree? Do we get to disagree with Augustine? <laughs> and, and how do we respond well? Without, you know, I think this goes with a lot of people, but with the character, with a character like Augustine, I think it's particularly important. Yeah, I think um, as far as listening well, I really think a key to that is just hearing him in his own words and the diversity of his own words, especially for Augustine, more so than maybe for some other figures. We have some like disentangling to do because as you say, he, his reputation precedes him in many cases. And that reputation can be really off-putting. He's known for being dour, for being all obsessed with sin and sex negative. All of these things are uh, baggage that he brings with him. But I think um, reading what he has to say in um, a classic work like Confessions or even in some of his sermons um, can help to see, help us to see some of the complexity to who he was and that, you know, there is some basis to most of these items of baggage with which he's associated. <laughs> like there, that's not, um, from nowhere. And 
there are legitimate concerns about his theology, but there's a lot more there too. There's also beautiful, beautiful stuff that he wrote and um, also really relatable aspects of his thinking too. So I guess I would say, yeah, key to listening well would be to um, give him a chance in his own words and maybe also reading across some different genres in his writing. So not only his polemical writings, but also maybe some of his pastoral works, his homilies. And as for disagreeing with him, yeah, I think um, it's a mistake to approach any figure in the history of theology as if they never make any mistakes or don't have any problems. So I would say that that's definitely an important part of the process too. Yeah, I I guess in my own scholarship, I tend to be, um, to try to focus on what we can learn from him on the positive um, with appreciation for other scholars who (laughs) helpfully call our attention to more problematic issues in his thinking. It's interesting because I think that sometimes we're very quick to, justifiably so, because we've seen some of the baggage, right? We've seen some of the consequences. But I do think that as we're as we're listening to Augustine, uh, this great cloud of witness, like witnesses, right? These, it, it really becomes an ongoing project of how we can listen well, but at the same time, I mean, this is a living tradition. Right. So that means that we can engage with Augustine in honest ways and genuine ways and say, you know, bro, I think you got it wrong here. <laughs> and, and I don't I don't I actually think that that's a service to the tradition and to him to him. Right. Where I mean, there's a lot of things that he didn't have access to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other thinkers that come after him. And and I, especially I mean, you mentioned Julian of Aclanum. I, you know, I, I always want I kind of want to ask him someday how happy were you with that whole interchange? Like, do you, do you feel like you, do you feel like you got there <laughs> or, you know, what is kind of still left outstanding? Cause I, I, mm-hmm. I really want to see grace in some spaces for people who are trying to work through some really difficult questions and how we can kind of have a little bit more of a, instead of seeing him on a pedestal, like there's no way that Augustine can be knocked off a pedestal. What does it look like for us to, sit at a table with him instead and have more of a conversation. So on that note, I'm thinking about his conception on the created world, like his rela- his understanding of the relationship between freedom and the will and then, and then evil and how it intersects with freedom and the will. Can you untangle a little bit of that for us and how he, I know he starts, he, he makes some changes in how he thinks about things in that space. But that might be an opportunity for us to listen to him process mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. his theology and some of the pla- uh, some of the things that he might think of that we don't. Yeah, one thing I really appreciate about Augustine's thinking on freedom is that he doesn't just have one understanding of freedom. So, in his earliest period, he's he thinks of freedom mainly in terms of um, our our ability to turn and choose between different courses of action. I mean, he literally talks about the will as a hinge and he presents it as very free. 
to choose between alternatives. But um, as time goes on, he adds to this an understanding of freedom that is more has more to do with relationship to the good. And so freedom becomes less tied to deliberation, to choice between a, an array of options and has more to do with being free to pursue what one rightly loves because it's worthy of love. And I think that it can sound a little off-putting to think, oh, freedom is like, he doesn't want us to have a choice about things and we're compelled by God. But I think at the end of the day, if we think about what kind of freedom we would most like to enjoy, there is a kind of intuitive appeal even to his mature understanding of, of freedom. Because it, it, in a sense, takes care of evil, right? Where there's, it, it's just an interesting thing when I hear people talk about freedom. It's either sort of freedom, kind of unhindered freedom. And if God doesn't give that to us, then what kind of God is that? And what kind of freedom do we have? But if there's no sense of restraint on evil, like basically I'm thinking about freedom as restraint on evil. And I think Augustine kind of comes, he comes to the point where I can't restrain evil. <laughs> right? Like if I'm the one that's responsible for restraining evil by my choices, then we're in a big heap of trouble, right? Which is, I, I think, basically the story of confessions and why he gets obsessed about pears, right? Like, I, I, I don't know why I did this. If, if I can't even diagnose my own problem, then we're in, we're in trouble. So I think he's, and as a pastor who's dealing with people who have very real issues, and he's, you know, the aftermath of, of invasions and seeing extreme violence, you come to ask yourself, what does it look like for evil to be truly restrained? Um, that, so that that's helped me personally, at least understand him a bit more. And as I'm thinking about that too, it, it's, I know he's very famous for the perspective that he has about the fall and original sin, but I'm curious as I think maybe what would be particularly helpful is to think about how he understands human and divine wills, which is kind of where you go with this because People can get very concerned, I think, and 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 justifiably so, with Augustine having a limited view of the will, in a sense, the human limitation of will, as it being connected to the good. But maybe it would be helpful to talk about that distinction that you lay out, and I think you do that specifically in chapter four about like God's power vis-a-vis human power. So, would you talk a bit about Augustine and maybe? You can choose it. I, I thought about talking about prayer specifically and the role of human and God wills, but you don't have to do that if you think there's another way to talk mm. about this distinction. Well, it's interesting because early on, I think that there's a much stronger analogy between divine and human willing for Augustine that would probably completely assuage the kinds of concerns that you're talking about, where the human will, like God's will, is autonomous. It's free. Yeah. There's nothing forcing it. That's part of his early definition of will. But um, later on, he does see the, the human will as just a lot more constrained, constrained by sin. And once that happens, really 
desperately in need of grace to be, to be turned around. But I don't think that he ever allows human willing to be displaced by divine willing. So I think even in his mature view, there's still a place for genuine human agency and motivation and relationship to God. And I do think prayer is a helpful case study in that because it's interesting when he appeals to prayer in the Pelagian controversy, he's trying to show really the importance of God's will, right? Like, Hey, why would we pray if we didn't need any help and we had the wherewithal on our own to will the right thing? Why would we pray for people's conversion Why would we pray to be delivered from evil? We wouldn't need help with any of that if our will were strong enough on its own. But I also think, um, and this is maybe not as explicit in his thought and because he's not going there with his argument, but the fact that he makes a big deal about prayer also means that human agency and human willing is important and our relationship to God. And I think we we see that dynamic, this um, mutuality reflected in his understanding of, of worship as described in Confessions when he's talking about his mother, Monica, and how she spent so much time listening to the Lord's word, to your word, O Lord, Augustine says, and speaking her words to the Lord in, in her prayers. So it's like there's this back and forth um, that I think is expressive of the fact that for Augustine, God chooses to enable our willing and freedom and that it's not like this competitive competitive relationship, but rather we can will more strongly and more freely and more fully because God is working in and through us through prayer, for example. Yeah. And kind of on that non-coercive space, um, you, in chapter seven, you talk about how the Holy Spirit interacts with the human will. And and I feel like if I squint at this a little bit, it's the question I get a lot, right? Like, how do I know it's God leading me and not me leading me? And I think, so I actually think Augustine, I mean, pastor as he is, is really helpful here. So can you talk about what how Augustine might help us kind of process how the Holy Spirit interacts with our will? Oh, well... I think that the kind of question you're describing or that particular issue, when do we know if it's the Holy Spirit or not, is difficult. But a lot of um, the situations that I think Augustine has in mind is conversion and basically anytime we're doing something virtuous, (laughs) we can be assured that the Holy Spirit is at work there. And because for Augustine, the Holy Spirit is love, love itself. This gets back to what you were saying about this. How love is actually a really crucial category in Augustine's thinking. And that's not what people think of right away, but it's so central. And so love becomes an important criterion for him. I mean, this of course, maybe just like pushes the question back a little further. Well, what's genuinely loving, right? What's the loving thing to do here? So it's not going to eliminate the existential discernment processes and struggles that we go through. But Augustine will talk about things like um, interpreting scripture, using a hermeneutic of love to kind of adjudicate what's a good reading and what's a bad reading. And I think a similar thing would probably apply with respect to willing. Is this expressive of a rightly ordered love, a love that comes from God? 
So may not make any everything easy, but maybe gets us a step a step further. Well, you know, I think implicit in the question that I asked, right, that I get from people, how do I know, you know, it's, I mean, you probably hear it a lot, right, working with students, like, how do I know this is God, or am I listening to God, or is it me, or is it the enemy, right? Like, it's like the three categories they have. And I'm like, well, you know, at some point, like, as we are transformed by the Spirit, you might actually sound like the Spirit. And I, and I think so the, the process of us becoming, as we are transformed by the Spirit, recognizing what is virtuous and what is loving becomes a little bit easier. Now, not all the time, right? We're, there's always going to be, you know, surprises in store <laughs> where we run into some kind of sin that we didn't realize was there or, you know, there's a lot of surprises there. But it, it the stereotype, I think, of Augustine tends to be that it's all struggle. <laughs> hmm. There's just all struggle. And, and, and I don't think that's actually right. I think it's more like it's all, it's all love. And sometimes love is complicated. And sometimes intimacy takes a little while to get through (laughs) and get to. Mm. So Mm. I have a few questions for you that have nothing to do with Augustine. Are you ready? Okay. So I need your immediate response. If you could compete as any professional athlete for a day, who would it be? Ooh. Ah, well, I'm going to go with a no longer living athlete. Go for Eric. it. <laughs> oh, so you'd like to, you'd like to run oh, and, yeah. like, and feel God's pleasure. That is not oh, something yeah. I experience. Tracking cross country. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel no pleasure in any point <laughs> when I am running. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Tea. How's that being in Germany? <laughs> Everybody around you is like, coffee. Um, if you got a day to hang out with any theologian living or dead, who would it be and why? Ooh. And let's let's take Augustine off the table. Yes, yes. Anybody else? Definitely. And you don't need to say Jesus either. You, can- <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, maybe Julian of Norwich, I guess, um, because we know so little of her biography, I'd just be really curious to find out more about who she was and what her life was like and also to talk some theology. That'd be fun too. (laughs) That's a great answer. Um, What is your favorite magical or mythological animal? Oh my. Um, Well, a unicorn is coming to mind. I guess the medieval symbolism is interesting, but uh, I don't know. Unicorn's a good answer. You know, no need to come up with an even better one if you don't want. <laughs> you know, unicorns are awesome. <laughs> Free association, right? Free association. Um, what is the strangest question you've ever received from someone about theology? Oh, well, I guess. Oh, well, one time when I was um, in Germany earlier with a bunch of international scholars, one person, it was an interdisciplinary thing. So, um Yeah, I was a a scientist of some kind. And he, when he found out I studied theology, he wanted to know if I believed in evolution. I just thought it was an interesting, an interesting initial question. That was like his first question. And and also um, the structure of believe is interesting there. Exactly. So I, I, I just sort of like honestly responded and I just said, well, you know, I think there's sort of like a likely explanation 
um, scientifically of what happened, but, you know, I don't know that I would say I believe in evolution. Yeah, there's I mean, a, I the, the theologian God. coming out there. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but he, he understood and it was a great conversation, but it just kind of, the question took me back, um, both in subject matter and how it was phrased. What is one idea in theology that needs to die? Oh my, I don't know. Um, well, I th I do think <sighs> limited atonement may have been the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> However, <laughs> um, perhaps that's, I don't know that that's as crucial as some other things, given that it's the limited atonement has been more limited in terms of the pe people who subscribe to that to begin with. But I guess as a woman theologian, um, I do look back at the history of Christianity and I think, wow, it would have been great if um, women had been able to be more involved theologically from the beginning. Cause you know, we really do have so few voices from those early centuries that are available to us, as you of all people would know. Yes. So, <laughs> so the uh, idea that, you know, women can't do theology or shouldn't do theology. Uh, yeah, I wish we could retroactively say that that <laughs> had to die very early on. <laughs> what place in the world have you never been, but you would love to visit? Oh, New Zealand. <gasps> New Zealand's great. Mm -hmm. To all my Kiwi listeners out there, if we have any, I know you're <laughs> awesome. Uh, oh, it's wonderful there. You definitely need to go there. Um, <laughs> beach or mountains for holiday? Ooh, I love both. Mm. Maybe mountains. What is the most recent work of fiction you read that you just couldn't put down? Mm. Well, <laughs> I started Kristen Laverne's daughter and have not worked my way all the way through it yet, but, and now it's in the U S and I'm in Germany, <laughs> but while I was reading it, I was quite into it. It's awesome. a big tone though. So it couldn't come with me. And what is the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? Hmm. Doesn't necessarily have to be one you like, but significant. That's a hard one. I do feel like we're in kind of a a period where there's so much diversity in theology and so many different things going on. It's hard to adjudicate. It's like the it's comparing apples to oranges to different kinds of fruit. But maybe something by James Cone or Gustavo Gutierrez or I don't know. Not sure. I'll, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, speed round over. Well done. So uh, one more question about Augustine, kind of a general thing. Augustine is one of those people in church history, right, that people know his name and know he's important, but generally not much else. So what would you what would you like people to know about him? And we've touched on a couple things, I think. And what myths or stereotypes would you want to dispel? Hmm. Just maybe... You could repeat one of the ones you said earlier, too, or, you know, bring out some new pieces. Yeah, well, maybe I can talk about one thing that he's known for and disliked for that. Actually, it's not something that has to be counterbalanced by other things, but actually has a positive side to it that might not be seen. But which 
which would be his obsession with sin, that he thinks sin is so determinative for what our lives are like and what our possibilities are, and that he thinks it's so pervasive in all that we do and think and feel. I think that he gets a bad rap for this and people can think of him as extremely negative, but there is another side to it. And I think that he is really patient and gentle and realistic and encouraging when it comes to those of us who are really aware with our, of our struggles with sin. And I think that his theology has like healing properties to it that are so um, can give such comfort to, to people who are struggling and feel the weight of their sin. And I think it can actually be really liberative that he has such an expansive notion of sin. <laughs> oh, so there, yeah, that would be one thing. I'm not sure that he's, always known by people who haven't read him as a beautiful writer. But I think his writing is just incredible. And I wish that people just realized how beautiful it was. You know, I think part of it might be translations, right? Like, I mean, if you pick up, because like with the confessions, when you pick up a book of that, sometimes just the way that some translators, especially kind of in the public domain, have... I've done that can be difficult. Um, I think can make his his prose more wooden. Uh, for me, actually, it was it to enter into his more sort of beautiful space because I totally agree with you. It says Kasakiakum dialogues. Um, I love like on order, and oh. I you know, I love those pieces because they're um, they're really delightful, and I I just see kind of his experimental side there. It's it's obviously super early in his career, and there's kind of a passion there. You the passion that you see carried through, but also kind of him playing with form. And uh, I love that you just get this whole section in there where he's talking about listening to water <laughs> running around and like the uh, the annoyance of people in conversations and his mom, like, I mean, the interruptive pieces of that. Um, so I find him to be um, not just so, someone that's kind of a beautiful writer, but also kind of fun in some spaces, like really um, and he, he, he's, he's kind of exploratory and even experimental. Um, and, and I think, um, that kind of lack of filter that I mentioned earlier, because it makes him someone that is, even if you disagree with him, you can have a good time with him, <laughs> uh, which I think is great. Yeah. So speaking of towering figures in Christian history, uh, let's spend just a brief period of time talking about your newest book. As of the recording of this podcast, Hot Off the Presses, the fourth edition, my goodness, the fourth edition of Turning Points uh, that you co-authored with Mark Knoll and David Comline. I, you know, it's just amazing to me. Um, so it's quite something to have the fourth edition of literally anything. Um, so can you talk about sort of the legacy of the Turning Point um, volumes and sort of what does this new edition offer and what was it like kind of working on it? Well, um, <clears throat> working on it was incredibly inspiring just because Mark Knoll uh, 
he, he is such a gifted historian. And I just, I was amazed again by how he tells stories in a way that's doesn't dumb things down at all, but yet is so accessible and clear. I mean, he just takes complicated dynamics and really can bring them to a point and not lose, not lose the nuance while he's doing that. So I was really inspired by that. Um, this new edition has a lot of updates to literature. So I think that's really helpful. And that's in like every chapter has these suggested readings at the end. So we updated that so people can know all about like the best new sources to have on various topics. And as well as um, the other, all the other notes in the book and um, the, the main text as well, we updated in accordance with recent scholarship that's come come out. And um, as far as substantive changes, we tried to, in this version, to highlight the voices of women more so than in um, previous volumes and their contributions to the history of the church. As we discussed earlier, there aren't always as many voices as we might hope for that actually have come down to us in texts we can access. But we tried to make the best of what is available to us and um, are grateful for work like yours that helps us in that endeavor. Oh, thank you. I am um, any, anywhere where we can have a book where you, I mean, a textbook kind of like this, or I think it's a good volume for anybody who's just interested in kind of a larger swath of, of Christian history. Like what were some of the important things that happened? Um, you hear about Council of Nicaea or Protestant Reformation and, and like you get, we get all these like points, but to kind of see how that story is told and kind of the lead up to things, how people engage with their particular context, like, um, and you're right. I, um, I, I had one class with Mark Knoll, um, prior, uh, before he left Wheaton to go to Notre Dame. And, uh, I, remember sitting in class as a graduate student being completely in awe um, of him telling a story <laughs> and then having and then I just I I I I didn't know how to take notes um I didn't know how to take notes because he was such a compelling storyteller I almost you either had to write down everything he was saying kind of like dictation uh which I didn't want to do because I was not that fast of a typer or writer um or you just kind of had to let it wash over you. And I was particularly um, just impressed with kind of the attention to how different figures in history contended with really large and important questions and how mm. we can access those spaces as fellow Christians and, um, and have, you know, history being an, an exercise in empathy. I, I, I feel like I saw that. Um, in being in his class and also in other works and and what fun to to uh, come together on this book and to bring a great resource back so um, I'm particularly grateful uh, for that so you are you're busy obviously um, and currently in Germany as you've mentioned in Tubingen so what are you working on now yeah so um, my official project for the year is working on how early Christians evaluated new and old innovation and tradition theologically. 
So that's um, my next book project. Um, and then on the side, I've also been working a little bit on the Pelagian controversy and Christology. And I'm um, especially interested in the theology of Pelagius, actually. So I'm um, thinking that might be something I'd like to do more work on as well. Well, cool. I look forward to hearing kind of where that goes, because that project on new and old sounds fascinating to me. And I'm thinking about, you know, what the novel and specifically kind of in the context of the Roman Empire of (laughs) of newness, not necessarily being a good thing. But uh, there might be some really interesting conflict there, which always makes for a fun project. Well, what a delight it was to talk with you, Hanluan. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. It was my pleasure. This is your host, Amy Hughes, with OnScript, and we've been enjoying a conversation today with Han Luen Kanser Kamline, Associate Professor of Church History and Theology at Western Theological Seminary. Han Luen's book, Augustine on the Will, a Theological Account, is published by Oxford University Press, and Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity, is published by Baker Academic. You can find links to the books on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.